0: Was it very challenging? And to how many investors did you talk to close the round?
1: <laughs> to be honest, um, I did not talk to that many investors because everything went pretty fast at one point. That's um, great
2: to hear. <laughs> <that nice. laughs> because
1: we, uh, once we showed this commercial traction, it became an interesting uh, an interesting case for the investors, and especially also the software approach is uh, pretty interesting. Sequence, uh, All right, uh,
2: Hello and welcome to the New Space Vision podcast, where we discuss rising technologies, economic opportunities and social dreams centered around the topics of innovation and New Space with executives, founders and other exciting people from the startup and New Space Ecosystem. I'm Sven Pschewara. And I'm
0: Dani Seidel, and we are the founders of the Berlin-based startup LIFE.io. Today, we are very excited to welcome Christina Nikolaus, co-founder and CEO of Okapi Orbit, which specializes in helping satellites avoid collisions and minimizing space debris there is a weird connection between us. So I think the first time we met was at an office opening of the startup Blick, uh, which just raised 12 million. Um, And basically Sven and I introduced one of our investors to Blick, who invested into Blick. And later the same investor, Andreas Kupke, also invested into you. So that's like an an interesting connection. And on the other side, um, you pitch to a potential new investor in exactly this room where we are right now um, in the live view office that they invest.
1: Yes, they invest.
0: They invested. Nice. Um, so we would like to understand your personal story and uh, yeah, we would like to get um, an understanding what brought you into the space industry.
1: Um, so I came to the space industry more by chance than by uh, planning it uh, from long term ahead. So um, I think when I was a kid, that was my only touch points to space when I watched Uh, with my grandfather's uh, Star Trek videos, um, and that's it. And I never believed that space is something where you can work as a normal person. Um, But later on uh, at the university in Braunschweig, I met my co-founders who went into this really crazy topic of space debris and started a copy hours with them.
0: That's exciting. I mean, I'm also a big Trekkie uh, and it's actually part of our investors pitch, right? Always yeah. in the beginning that I'm a Trekkie. No, I think this is this is really a big part of the of, of the game, right?
2: But it's not the only coincidence and not the only parallel between you two. Uh, Daniel worked in the automotive industry. You worked in the automotive industry. So what are the parallels between the automotive industry and space?
1: Um, I think as nearly all of the industries um, and people on Earth, their connections to space in general, especially if you're looking to autonomous driving, for example, all the uh, technologies which are in the car right now. Um, And I think for me, where's the strongest similarity is that in the automotive industry as well as in the space industry, you have products which you can get passionate about. So if you drive a nice car, and see this car and it's a tangible product, um, you can fall in love with it quite easily, as well as if you're working in a space company and see the satellites or go to fairs or you see rockets and all this um, interesting stuff.
0: And uh, what what did you do in the automotive industry?
1: Um, At this time I was a a trainee at Mercedes-Benz and went to different departments. This reached from financing to the production line where you really see how the motor comes into the car and the buses. So it was quite diverse.
0: And I can imagine, uh, because I was in the same situation at BMW, not in a trainee position, um, but um, uh, it it is a big decision actually to leave such a good position at Mercedes.
2: Especially in Germany, right, where (laughs) the automotive industry plays such an important role.
0: So, yeah, how how was it for you? Was it a simple decision to leave this uh, great opportunity at uh, one of the most famous uh, companies out there?
1: Um, Now, to be honest, I was struggling a long time because I really liked this corporate environment. I loved the automotive industry. Um, But I decided for myself that I want to take the opportunity to see something else, because at that time I was 20 years old, so pretty young, and I couldn't imagine myself being this corporate for forever. So I thought, okay, I want to test what's out there for me. Uh, What else there besides the automotive industry?
0: Yeah. And was um, also uh, new space playing a role for you? Um, because maybe uh, to give some background for me personally, of course, you could have worked for the European Space Agency or for the German Aerospace Center or uh, Airbus, these big organizations. But I was working then in the automotive industry um, because you have the shorter product cycles and also what you mentioned. Um, but for me personally, it was a change when new space um, came, when I heard of Elon Musk or uh, SpaceX, but also Planet. to to go into this uh, new opportunity. Was it somehow similar for you or was it uh, a different different Mm.
1: thing? I think with new space and um, space being more public uh, and uh, reachable in the media, it seemed to be that space, the space industry itself, that there is a business case and it's open for also not only the astronauts to go to space, so also for people who studied management as I did. So I think this uh, opened my perspective that there uh, could be a job opportunity in the
2: future. Nice. Um, well, okay, so this is super exciting and super interesting, but obviously uh, we are super curious to learn, like what is the product of Okafi orbits? What are you building?
1: Yeah, so we at Okapi orbits we're building a space traffic management software platform, which helps um, basically all people who are operating in space. It might This might be satellite operators or launcher operators to um, efficiently operate their um, missions and plan them with a zero impact on the space debris environment.
2: Okay, so a navigation system for in-orbit missions, right? Okay, maybe we're gonna we're gonna un- unbundle this now in a second, <laughs> and obviously, um, uh, just to quote NASA here, even tiny paint flakes can damage a spacecraft when traveling at up to twenty-eight thousand kilometers an hour. That's the speed uh, an object has in low Earth orbit. In fact, millimeter-sized orbital debris represents the highest mission-ending risk to most robotic spacecraft operating in low Earth orbit. Well, that's a long sentence, but in long story short, well, tracking the tens of thousands, uh, if not more, of small particles in orbit and navigating uh, around them. That's the challenge for every operator of a spacecraft in space, right? So um, let's imagine Daniel and I have built a a satellite and we want to monitor the Earth. Um, how are you helping us precisely like how am I engaging what 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 how could I use your software
1: um, yeah I think you're touch basing an interesting point so what we can do so far is a kind of a basketball size objects in Leo they're catalogable so this means the orbit is very well known uh, we can predict um, maneuvers ahead and know how to avoid these very precisely Coming down to softball size uh, objects, these are trackable, which means that we um, usually spot them and can also uh, usually avoid collisions. But if you're talking about tiny uh, paint flakes, they're um, usually damaging the surface of space-based assets, and these um, really tiny objects are really hard to tackle or to um, no really hard to detect. And uh, we at Okapi look um, through all the object size, predict how they um, are moving in comparison to your satellite, and uh, find the best way and optimize maneuvers to fulfill your mission goals. Um, and then, of course, we have additional services like re-entry predictions. How do you uh, plan the end of life of your mission? And also. In initial mission planning. So we say, okay, this is the optimal setup of your overall mission over a lifetime of five, six, seven years. Um, And this is all part of the software platform.
0: I remember uh, the party at Blick where we met the first time, and I talked to, to your colleagues because I also did um, orbit analytics and a- atmospheric effects, etc. And I was really excited about this topic because this is really really rocket science, right? This is uh, orbits, a lot of complex uh, optimization problems you have to solve. Um, so one one question I had is, uh, where do you get the data from?
1: Um. So we at copy we use um, open source data, this is one part, but we also have a partner network of laser ranging stations, telescopes and radar stations, where we have on-demand tracking of uh, specific objects which are relevant to our customers. Um, and these are our main data sources. And um, then we also have the customer data, so we know very precisely what the people who sign up for our platform do, how they plan their missions. Um, and that's also an integral part of the platform yeah
0: and um, uh, I mean these these radar um, uh, stations are super exciting and they're getting getting better and better um, uh, can you tell us a bit like what is, what is are there big um, stations planned for the next 10 years that your data is getting better um, or will you in the future uh, focus on relying on this open data with just adding a bit commercial
1: um, so we see that the market, especially the commercial market of observations, is evolving a lot in the last years. And we see more and more commercial players entering the market, as well as states uh, building new stations and opening them to the public. So we see definitely that more data will be available in the future and we want to um, build a software which can leverage them to the most. Yeah.
0: And is it, uh, if, if you um, uh, find smaller objects, Uh, Will uh, the amount of objects also increase and at the end you will have way more manoeuvres, which are the blind spots today, or how how is it behaving?
1: So we see that the um, potential collisions with bigger objects are the ones where customers really have to manoeuvre. For smaller objects, what we also see that sometimes shielding technologies on the hardware itself are from an economical perspective more um, favourable for the customers. So I think there might be slight increase of the overall maneuvers, but not in significant amount.
2: Yeah, I would have a question like, let's let's take the example of that there's a, a basketball sized um, object in the same orbit or on a collision path to 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 our satellites or live your satellite. And um, we say, OK, well, the, the risk is too high. We want to move the satellite. Obviously, we can't most probably operate this. That's correct. We can't operate most probably the satellite while it's being maneuvered from one orbit to the other.
1: So it really depends, but most of the time you can't use it for your specific use case and it's on us to see, okay, which other satellite can take this responsibility over or how can you leverage redundancy or reduce the downtime of your services with, for example, proactive maneuvers. So we take the mission uh, constraints into account.
2: Well, that's very cool. Let's maybe touch on this in a second. My question was going into the direction. Okay, we have our satellites. How does the information from Okapi orbits get to our satellites to be moved upwards or downwards? Like how? What's the interface between your software and the satellite on-orbit hardware?
1: So it's uh, like an operational tool for the satellite operator on ground, so we have APIs as well as a web interface, so your operator would type in your satellite data to our platform and then receive the maneuver commands and then upload it to a communication system, for example, to their satellite or through their own operations software they have in-house.
0: So uh, the operation software will would still be um, uh, operated, or it's the operation software of the satellite operator, right? Yeah. So you don't go that deep today? Yes, right? at the
1: moment, yes. Yeah.
0: And do you have implicit knowledge about, for example, the thrusters of specific satellites? Like, do the operators need to put it into your software or you do you just give the Delta, Delta V or something like this? No,
1: this is an integral part of the data our customers uh, put into our platform, so we know very precisely the capabilities of the thrusters. We even help them to choose the right thruster for their mission goals and say, okay, this is the best thruster for your satellite. You should use this because with this you can increase the performance or um, perform the maneuver you will need in the future. So we have very explicit knowledge about this thruster and the hardware itself.
0: And this is also part of the uh, of the business model for you also to support them. Right. So they save money and um, uh, basically uh, so that's how you sell it. But what what is the um, uh, business case? How is the pricing working for such a product? Because, I mean, Sven and I even uh, just selling to um, uh, companies, utilities, energy operators, um, where, where you have some benchmarks, problems on earth of maintenance and orbit, it's all very um, uh, challenging, I would say, regarding the pricing, right, isn't
1: it? Yeah, so in general, we have the software as a service model, so you pay per satellite per month, basically, um, and get then get full access to the software services. And what we can do, we can show our customers very precisely how much money they will save with less maneuvers, and also how much uh, more revenue they will generate with an extended lifetime of their satellites. So we say, okay, look, if you have less maneuvers, you can lose this trust to operate your satellite for. X amount longer and um, then it becomes a really easy business case for the customer to evaluate.
0: And what's typically uh, the increase of uh, lifetime? Or How much money uh, can they save with using Okapi? What is in your sales material? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's uh, it's very different from satellite operator to operator. Um, so this can be several weeks up to several months, uh, which they can extend a lifetime and compared to uh, overall lifetime of Three to eight years—that that's quite a lot.
2: Yeah, maybe just one question before we maybe also dive a little bit more into the overall regulatory framework. Um, so it seems like you have a lot of, I would say, modules of your software. You've touched on, okay, mission planning. You said mission operations, and then also end of lifetime. Like, can you maybe ex- give us an overview of what like the tool landscape is within Okapi? Office? Like it seems like you're really covering the life cycle of a satellite, right?
1: Yeah, so um, typically we engage with our customers very early on when they just have one or two satellites maximum orbit and plan their constellations or bigger um, fleets of satellites. And there we help them to plan the mission. This includes what hardware is the best, what um, orbits are the most interesting one and how can they reach their goals. What operation system do they have, should they build uh, to operate more efficiently and then we come over to the risk prediction part where we say okay we screen everything what's around your satellites we know what who's next to you today Mm -hmm. and in five years who are your neighbors basically Um, and then we get over to the maneuver part we say okay this is the best maneuver to fulfill your goals to uh, reduce the risk and then we also plan the re-entry phase um, and the orbiting for them so say okay it's basically the full Life cycle once you plan to have satellites until your satellite re enters Earth orbit.
0: Yeah, just uh, another question came to my mind. Um, is it so? Um, I was under the impression you're focusing on low Earth orbit. Now we hit the James Webb telescope. I mean, that's very far away at the branch point, but um, are you focusing on LEO?
1: So, our customer base is mostly in LEO at the moment, but we also have first geo operators who are in the platform because. Um, space debris is not that of a big issue for geo operators and for the operators, but they face similar, um, or they face problems which can be solved with our uh, solutions. Um, so we're lo- also looking to geo.
0: So am I the first one who asked this James Webb Telescope question? Because I mean, it's super sad, like the most expensive uh, experiment, and there was already a small collision and I was really, I had fear uh, of another collision uh, with the James Webb and it's damaged, yeah. right? It was just so short.
2: Yeah, maybe maybe talking about exactly these, uh, yeah, in, in part catastrophic consequences of um, a, a collision and all, you also mentioned, well, who going to be your your neighbors in two years, in five years, in ten years, right? We all are, obviously, we as consumers of satellite data, very much a benefit from the uh, increase in number of satellites, but with the number of satellites in orbit, most probably there will be an increase of debris in orbit. Is there any kind of regulation towards minimizing um, the amount of space debris at the moment?
1: Um, yeah, so we see that um, national states are implementing regulatorys and laws. We don't have an international approach yet, but we also see that. Um, agencies or organizations like the United Nations or IADC or ESA implementing best practices or guidelines. Um, so we see a movement there, but we're not there where we should be to really make orbit safe for everyone.
0: So um, what, what? how would you define, uh, so where should we be, basically?
1: We should have an international approach, how we behave in, in space, which is bounding for all operators and securing a minimal amount of uh, sustainable behavior uh, without um, compromising the competitiveness of uh, certain countries or operators. So I think this is the place where we should be.
0: And part of it uh, would also be penalties for misbehavior, right? So are there today already some penalties from these national regulatories?
1: I don't know the exact if someone has it, to be honest. <laughs>
0: no. I mean, uh, th- there was the case where uh, there were some uh, uh, experiments uh, with uh, rockets to satellites, and then you had a lot of space debris, right? And I think it's very hard uh, to to then uh, put a penalty on. on yeah, China, to enforce right? yeah. it exactly yeah. on a,
2: um on the overall level. But maybe one question, like on a maybe exactly because like all of these um, ground to satellite tests yeah. were, were military driven, right? And we also have like a lot of commercial activity going on, which maybe is easier to to regulate. Um, We all know um, the great impact SpaceX has on both launcher systems, as well as now the operator of the biggest satellite constellation in space. And what I just know anecdotally is that the Aerolus satellite, I think from the European Space Agency, had to move out of the way uh, for for SpaceX Starlink satellite. Um, Have you already talked to SpaceX uh, for using your solution? <laughs> can't <comment> this, <laughs> okay. Okay. We can't comment on this. We can't comment on
0: this. But the, the funny thing about this Aeolus satellite was that they tried to reach SpaceX and they didn't react.
2: Yeah, exactly. That yes. was there was, that the, was the exactly. Reaction. I forgot yeah. about that one. Yeah, that yeah. makes the whole story even more um, yeah and yeah. such a beautiful satellite. Yeah. Exactly.
0: So um, what's also uh, interesting for us is to understand um, if uh, there is already awareness um, for space debris and the commercial implications um, at, at your potential customers like do they really think of this as a real problem or is it just ah, oh, yeah we will wait until something happens and then we react.
1: I think with the increasingly launched satellites, everyone sees that there is a problem and it's quite popular. Every space fair has a space debris session basically. (laughs) Um, So I think it's in uh, their minds, definitely. But there are also some players who say, okay, look, I can uh, launch another satellite if one breaks down and they don't see this impact on the society.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh well, one, one question I would have not so much about like the people sending um, stuff up into space, but rather the ones which are competing with you to help others deal with that problem, right? Um, which is that um, right there, there are companies like Kaihan and Leo Labs, for example, even captures its own data. Uh, how do you differentiate to them? And um, to touch on, on Leo Labs, Do you plan to vertically integrate and build up your own radar stations at some point? As you've said, you are working right now with a lot of partners.
1: Um, Yes, I think it's very compatible on one hand. Of course, uh, we're using a lot of data and have a software solution, which is really good in fusing different data sets to get a holistic overview um, and works on a broader scheme, let's say. So I think there are definitely compatibilities um, from companies who have their own observations and ours.
0: I've seen an interesting uh, presentation which made me uh, very sceptical, but I'm I'm not not the expert on this. It was a company which said um, observations from ground are nice, but we put a lot of satellites into orbit and actually um, find the things with optical cameras um, on satellites. Um, I have to say, um, what what made me um, um, thought of uh, the feasibility is that the People behind this company were very skilled um, astrophysicists, etc. And so, uh, but what do you think about this approach? Because I, I thought commercially very challenging.
1: Yes, I think from engineering perspective, this is definitely an interesting approach um, because, of course, you can if you have equipment in in space which can track smaller objects, that's nice to have. But it's also a very very challenging um, task from my point of view because. Uh, the space debris is not a fixed point so you have to detect this but your satellite is also moving and you don't know 100% where the position of your satellite is so uh, from a physical perspective this is a really hard challenge and talking about the commercial perspective if you think about this as the overall business model of course the customers have to pay for this infrastructure and everyone knows how much space infrastructure costs to maintain it and to launch it Um, so Um, It really depends if the customers are willing to pay this extra cost in the long term to have a slightly better database.
0: Yeah, this was exactly my thought that um, from an investor's perspective uh, or generally commercial perspective, um, I, I calculated the number of how many satellites would you need, how much would the launches, the development operations and so on cost. That was a lot of money, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. So if, the, if there is a company who is doing this, we are looking forward to your pitch and I would like to ask some questions regarding this. Um, but yeah, um, exactly. It's, uh, um, yeah, th- there was maybe the, the business perspective missing on this idea, because technically, as you mentioned, really exciting. Um, but uh, so you, you definitely see the future on more ground based systems, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: well, um, maybe a controversial question. Um, In the end, like, as it is such an important topic to manage space traffic, right? And here on Earth, we have also the airspace, space space on water, yeah, where um, aircraft are being managed by governmental institutions like air traffic control. Will we ultimately see a centralized space traffic control who will take over some of the things you're currently providing?
1: um i think some parts should be taken over by the government especially when it comes to regulatory and setting a common understanding internationally how do we want to use space um i think this is definitely a governmental task but i think the technical solution will come from the industry because the industry is way faster to develop solutions which can help and we're already there where the government is not uh, is still planning on how they want to approach this so i will think it will be a industry pushed uh development
2: so it's more like the the government is setting the, the frameworks like the how you should behave in traffic and it's maybe setting out the, the lanes in which you should drive in the end you would have still a navigation system not built by the government. So just like you on Earth.
0: I I would have a um, um, a product question, which I just got got away of because you mentioned the government. Uh, Like when I read your name, uh, you could also say OKPI, API, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and my question would be, from a product perspective, um, so I, when I first got to, to know you, the API integrations into the systems—super exciting um, uh, topic from 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 the software perspective. But are customers now more using um, end user application with the front end uh, from Okapi, or are they really relying on the
2: API? Uh,
1: they're using the API. It's fully uh, integrated to their systems uh, because the goal is to automate this whole process of maneuvering, and um, we, use, we, in our case, use the graphical user interface just for sales purposes. And for the first like two weeks, if you want to see what's happening and have it visualized and gain the trust into this product, um, then we use it. But then it kind of vanishes from the, <laughs> from the desk.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's super cool. So uh, re- really nice um, and uh, also also scalable business model, and this automation uh, is is definitely uh, is a super super cool thing. Um, so let's talk a bit more about your company um, because uh, we know you mentioned um, uh, you originated from an um, fr- from Braunschweig from the university, and I also know that your your co-founders they worked also in an institute yes. on this technology. Can you yes. tell us a bit more about this this uh, story from university to startup, um, also from a technology? perspective?
1: Yes, sure. So uh, we're a classical spinner from the Technical University of Braunschweig, but my three co-founders were PhD students at that time, everyone with their own focus, uh, from long-term simulation of space debris environment until data fusion of observation data. So we, um, at the beginning, had a wide range of knowledge about the space debris environment. And then, you know, uh, we saw new spaces coming and we thought, okay, there will be an opportunity for all the things we developed for years, uh, which would you know, vanish in the university um, if we don't take the chance to commercialize and bring it out there. And when we started with Tokapi, everyone said, okay, space three, what a crazy topic. No one was talking about this uh, 2018. Um, so we had a quite, quite rough time when we started and then it took us a couple of beers and bars until (laughs) we um, figured out the business model and how we want to approach this and started
0: yeah i mean it's it's such a niche also from an educational perspective in germany there are seven universities um, teaching space engineering and then you have these three phds doing these simulations for space debris i want to start a company Um, and um, like this ip um, or this knowledge they had from the university was there also some ip transfer from the university, was there a smooth process, or was it more um, that you you got the theoretical knowledge, but you actually built it um, uh, fr- from scratch?
2: And maybe just to add on this, the reason why we're asking is because oftentimes, at least here in, in the German kind of universal system, it's quite hard for yeah. everyone who's yeah. listening to exactly transfer IP from the university to startups. So this, is, I think, something which could be done better in Germany. But have you say have you faced these challenges as well?
1: Um, To be honest, not to to that extent, as most of the startups did, because we built the product later on, so it was a theoretical knowledge. Mm. And then we started to build the product from from scratch, basically during um, the Exist Gründerstipendium, so a governmental grant. Um, And we had a professor and an institute, which was very supportive in commercializing it, which is also commercially Focus with a lot of industry projects. So um, they saw the benefits we're bringing with commercializing this. So they support us along the road. Um, so the professor and um, the people at the in- institute.
0: Yeah, that's also always um, uh, what, what Sven and I tell to people who want to start a company. Um, I mean, everyone is talking about the better funding in the US, but for this early stage grants, Germany and uh, Europe is, is a great place, right? Sven and I also had this Exist um, um, uh, um, scholarship. Um, and uh, But I, I know there's space for three people and you are four, so how did you manage that mm-hmm. one?
1: <laughs> we still had someone at the university at okay. that time, yeah. so we had an overlap until we had the first own uh, generated revenues to employ everyone f- nice. copy. Nice.
0: Who, who was the first customer, if you can disclose?
1: We started off with ESA projects, so this was the first uh, revenues we generated. Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. So Isa was the first anchor customer.
2: But then maybe like let's touch on this. So how is the how have you financed the company? What has been the financial history? Because like just like to already pinpoint to one of the highlights, you just closed your seed round, I think, and quite a big one, 5.5 million euros, if I'm correct. But uh, this has been the latest news. So and you said you started with a scholarship. What is uh, how have you financed yourself in between?
1: Yeah, so uh, due to our good relationship with the institute, we had uh, ESA project very early on. So we generated own projects. we bootstrapping for uh, nearly two years. Then we closed an angel round where we um, had convertible loans with uh, renowned angels from different um, industries, and. Yeah, that's it. And then uh, with the angels, we made the step to get the first paying customers for our services, proving that there is a scalable business in what we're delivering. And then we had an easier access also to convince the VCs um, who now joined the round.
2: Yeah, I think some of the the angels which invested in your company are also coming from the space background. Yes, yes,
1: definitely.
0: And um, uh, like, uh, do you see now talking to more investors, um, uh, because it's a very abstract and uh, challenging topic to understand, right? And now you, you actually got some some uh, interesting VCs in, in the round, right? For, uh, for example, Munich, RE Ventures. So was it easy to pitch the case to them or was it very challenging? And to how many investors did you talk to close the round?
1: To be honest, um, I did not talk to that many investors because everything went pretty Fast at one point. Um, That's great
2: to hear. (laughs) Because
1: we uh, once we showed this commercial traction, it became an interesting, uh, an interesting case to the investors, and especially also the software approach is uh, pretty interesting, as you might know. And I think what helped us is that the space hypothesis um, was proven by other startups before, so we were we kind of down in the supply chain. But we've seen uh, big um, fundraisers also in Europe for space companies. So we talked to VC's who are open for space, who are interested in this, and then um, where we had basic knowledge already.
0: And it was um, uh, in in, in June uh, where it was announced, right? So I think you you closed a bit before and. That's uh, exactly the um, the time now where we have a financial cool down and the VC funding went down. And then there is this niche space tech startup raising this round. So uh, this then had an influence on you because the investors, you found a lead investor and then it went fast? Or or Um, did you see in early discussions some implications?
1: Yeah, so our round was closed earlier than the announcement. Um, So for us, we were not affected by this um, downturn or cool down, as you said.
2: But I think like the, the lead VC of your last round is very interesting. It's Munich RE Ventures for all the people who don't know who Munich RE is. It's the biggest reinsurance company globally. And they have a US based uh, venture capital arm, which led the round. So first of all, congrats, it's really cool. Maybe, uh, I don't know whether it is publicly shared and if you can touch on this, but um, I mean Munich RE has also made some other investment and they, I think, also the biggest insurer of um, rocket launches. So I already can see the connection there. But can you tell us a little bit why they've invested in you?
1: Um, yeah. So uh, first of all, Munich uh, Munich Re Ventures are uh, really progressive and understanding what's coming next. So they're uh, investing mainly in disruptive technologies and industries who are, have uh, really impact on society and uh, the future. And As you mentioned, they um, are the biggest space insurer, not only for rocket launchers, but also for satellite operators. Um, So they know the space industry already and they also know about the risks. So um, they see what problem we are solving and are very aware of this. Um, So we had a very good touch point uh, from the start with them.
0: Great. So is this another um, potential for customers, uh, the insurance companies?
1: Um, Yes, sure. So what we do is a technical risk mitigation tool, if you want to put it like that. And there's a natural connection to insurers' business where they um, have a financial risk mitigation tool. So um, there are definitely business opportunities there.
2: Yes. It is great to hear. Just like one story regarding Munich. When I was in school, I was super fascinated with space and I wanted to get a, a summer internship at a space company or something related to that. And what I did, I... I called Munich RE's uh, phone number hotline and I tried to get through to the people which are insuring rockets and they, they just pick <laughs> up the phone and and, and and I introduced myself like 14, 15 year old boy and they are uh, and then just hung up. But I oh, think now, no, yeah, well, <laughs> but I think like this just like... Uh, back then that's now they missed a the big opportunity They missed the big <laughs> opportunity, i <laughs> yeah. would say no but it's really great and congrats again um we know how hard it is to raise a round and as said i think the time is really really great yeah um
0: you also have uh, mentioned the um, business angels uh, coming from a space background uh, right one person is andreas Kupke, founder of a, of a fintech who will be at our next uh, new space vision meetup um and uh, b- basically wh- what is the role of these business angels like do they support you a lot um because they have these connections to the space ecosystem or um, or w- where um, does uh, the, the support come from?
1: Yeah, definitely. So the angels are very uh, active in helping us to uh, think about new business opportunities, to so getting uh, us in touch with other players in the industry. Um, so they're very, very helpful and hands on in the daily operations as well.
0: Yeah, Um, um, what we also see, uh, if you have business angels in uh, an early stage, we actually didn't do it, um, but we always think when going back, we may should have had business angels sooner because they just give you so much support Also, as a founder. Right. So this networking is a super important topic. Also, I mean, we have a relationship with you and there's also a network. But um, you are a female founder, um, which we don't see so often, unfortunately. Uh, and you're also um, uh, in the Women in Aerospace Group since 2018. Right. So that's uh, super cool. Can you tell us a bit more uh, first of all about this group before we may dive a bit into this topic?
1: Yes, sure. So the Women in Aerospace Group is an international group which uh, helps to build networks, especially within uh, the female uh, aerospace professionals network and also who uh, supports young um, persons who want to get into the space industry. So it's a broad scheme uh, what they're offering and yeah.
0: And how can I, uh, um, uh, as as an interested um, person in aerospace, join this group? Uh,
1: So there are local groups and uh, you can find them all online and just fill out a short form. And then you're free to go to the networking events to enjoy the um, network talks yeah. and networking yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. there was uh, one, one interesting um, uh, thing uh, I, I looked in, into some some stats and I was surprised that in the space ecosystem there is a better gender balance than in, in some pure IT software um, industries do you see the same um, or do like how do you do you see the um, the gender balance in the space industry right now
1: um, so I think the gender balance is improving but really slowly improving. So there's a lot in balance still there. And I think this is not an issue of fixing the women and say, okay, let's go and be just more (laughs) curious and get in the space industry. It's more of a topic of company culture and culture itself to be open and make everyone feel comfortable and valued. So yeah.
0: Yeah. So how do you do it at at Okapi? Um, Like, do you have some activities, uh, or uh, how how do you manage it?
1: Um, To be honest, at this stage, we don't have specific activities to bring in diverse people, um, except building the company culture where everyone feels comfortable. And soon we have uh, over forty percent, which are female um, employees at Okapi, with eleven nationalities. Not because we said, okay, we want to bring in more uh, women and more. Diverse people, just because we said, okay, we're open to everyone and see who's best for the job. And we got brilliant applications um, and also encouraged the women which are in the company to go out. Um, yeah. And yeah, okay. Th-
0: this, is, this is a really high number uh, 40%. I'm super so happy to hear this. And uh, I think you also, as a role model, play a role here um, because what we have seen internally, so LiveView has uh, also a bit more than 30%. Um, uh, which, which for software is also more than average, of course, it should always improve. But what we have seen um, as, as one of the biggest impact is if you have the first female developers in a team, they're also part of the interviewing process you just attract uh, also more female talents in the future, right? So because if the interviewing process is only done, uh, for example, by male, right, then you won't uh, you, you won't um, uh, f- find the people, right, at the end, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's somehow a filter. And you as, a, as an organization need to de-bias yourself, I think, a lot, right? And role models are always um, uh, the best approach, here, I think. Yeah.
2: yeah. As we come to the end of the podcast, maybe a question like what would be, Uh, In a word of advice to anyone who wants to start in a new space ecosystem as a a founder, as a co-founder or in another company, do you have any advice?
1: Um, Yes. uh, you want to reach out to this rocket insurers, call them twice if they don't. If they hang up. <laughs>
2: maybe, maybe you should have done that, maybe I would, would be now working at an insurance company <laughs> or would have started this space company earlier. Well, is there anything you would, which you would like um, to, to say to our audience? Is there any, any, are there any news about Okapi Space which you would like to share? Any open positions which you would like to fill? Now is the time for that.
1: If you join us on our journey, check out our jobs.
2: <laughs> Very <laughs> good. good. Thanks a lot, Christina. Uh, and thanks for having you
0: in person here in, in the office in Berlin. It was really nice to talk to you. And uh, maybe we we'll see you at the next New Space Vision meetup because you were also pitching at a New Space Vision meetup when you were a handful
2: of people. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And for everyone listening, please make sure to tune in next time when we have a cha- chat with Mark Kugel, founder of microgravity research company, Yuri. Um And uh, exactly, that's going to be exciting as well. I'm really looking
0: forward to that. That's a super, super exciting, crazy topic.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And please make sure that you follow us on New Space Vision uh, at New Space Vision on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and very new on TikTok as well, where we hope to post short highlights of this podcast and all podcasts in the future. Um, See you next time, I would say. See you next time. Bye-bye.
0: The angle has landed. We choose to go to the moon in this lift to... Liftoff. We have
1: a liftoff.